Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come before you now in the precious and wonderful name of Jesus. And Lord, we ask for your blessing on this word. Give us understanding in it. And Lord, I pray that you speak to us in our condition that we're in. Whatever that may be, you know, each of us, Lord, those who are walking right with you and those who are not where they should be. And Lord, if there's anybody here that is not truly walking with you, we pray you call them to yourself. In the precious and wonderful name of Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Um, a question. Is Jesus a friend of sinners? You know, we always have the challenge that what we say and what we affirm or state, we must defend by the Word of God. So I guess the question is, does the Word of God say that Jesus is a friend of sinners? You know where that came from? Where Jesus is a friend of sinners? It came from Pharisees. The Pharisees. The Pharisees called Jesus a friend of sinners as an attack against him, as uh, a, a way to try and degrade him before the people because Jesus had become so popular that they were somehow trying to dissuade the people from following him. So they called him a friend of sinners. Why? Because he went and ate with sinners and uh, spent time with sinners. And so they went and called him a friend of sinners in a very derogatory manner. Why did Jesus come into this world? To be a, a friend of sinners? Ooh. Yes, to save sinners. Okay. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. Jesus was not a friend of sinners. He was the greatest missionary this world has ever had or ever will have. The entirety of his work was the work of a missionary. He went after people for an express purpose, to win them, to take them from the place of being enemies of God to the place of being friends of God. And I'm going to take time to lay this out and to show this. And when we get to the end, I'll press home this thought a little bit more that we would understand uh, the reality of this. Um, are the lost friends of Jesus? No, they're not. They're not friends of Jesus. In, in uh, James chapter 4, verse 4, it says that if we're a friend of the world, we are an enemy of God. Right? I mean, that's a pretty serious statement. That's not the idea that People are friends, but I'm glad that he's been a missionary because he sought after each of us. And any of us that have become friends have become friends because Jesus sought us out as that missionary, seeking us, desiring us, calling us to bring us to a place where we could be friends. But I would even take that further, that we could become sons and daughters of God, that we could truly belong to him. And so really what we need to understand is how do people that are enemies of God become friends of God? How does that happen? Because that is of extreme importance, because if we don't become a friend of God, then we are going to face Him at a final judgment as our adversary, not as our advocate. If we become friends of God, then He becomes our advocate. He becomes one that defends us. We can stand before God and, and not of our own righteousness be able to enter in, but because of the blood of Christ. And Christ will defend us because we have been cleansed by His blood and strove to walk with Him in fellowship. So what I want to do is I want to take a journey through the Gospel of Luke, through a couple of chapters here, and try and press home this thought about the mission of Jesus, him being a missionary. That was, that's what he was all about, everything. And if you might think of it, the first 30 years of his life was a preparation for him to be the missionary. When the time came and he was, he was ordained to the Father at that moment to begin, when he was baptized by John the Baptist, he began at that moment to work through his missionary calling through what he was as God incarnate in flesh and blood to reach a perishing world. In Luke chapter 7, you have, beginning in verse 36, the account of where Jesus is invited to a Pharisee's home. And when you look at this account 
um, I think we'll see some things that are very obvious when we understand the culture dynamics. Something that is really important and was really important and still is in, in parts of the Middle East as well is hospitality. Hospitality was so important, especially in the days of Jesus and prior to that, was so important that it became a sacred responsibility of somebody to take care of those who came under their house. That's why when you look at the account of Lot and the angels that came into his home, it became his responsibility, his sacred responsibility to care for those guests because it was so important to take care of people, to be hospitable. So in the cultural dynamics and in the whole thought of hospitality, what happened is if you were a guest, if you were invited to somebody's house, they would go and they would have your feet washed. So you'd have the servant come and wash your feet. They would give you a kiss. The master of the house would give you a kiss on each cheek. And then they would go and, and pour oil, some oil on your head, some perfumed ointment, frankincense or something of the sort. And I believe the reason, this is just speculation here, I believe part of the reason for that is because they didn't have as many baths as what we have. Okay, so there was a, a particular aroma that went with people, and so you put that oil on, and all of a sudden you smell nice and wonderful, you know. And, uh, and so I'm just guessing that was part of it. But you'd have that, and it'd come all over you, and you'd smell it, you know. you just have that wonderful aroma all around you, and then all the people would just make a beautiful atmosphere there. But when he entered this Pharisee's house, the Pharisee did none of these things. He didn't wash his feet. He didn't give him a kiss. He didn't anoint his head with oil. He didn't do any of it. And he did it on purpose. It wasn't a, it wasn't a mistake. It wasn't something that he kind of just passed over it. This was a very purposeful act, and it was done before all the other guests to see his disdain for Jesus. He was an enemy. He was not a friend of Christ. He was an enemy. So why did Jesus go into that environment? When we look at this little environment here, we can see this as a microcosm of, of humanity. Because why Jesus went into that home is the same identical reason why Jesus came into this world. You see, he was a missionary. He came for a soul. He was out after one person. He went into hostile territory to deal with the hostility, to deal with the rejection, to deal with the insult because he was out after somebody. He was seeking after somebody. And so who was he seeking after? Well, part of the dynamic of, of these banquets that would be put on, this dinner, is that it would be the invited guests would sit around the common table or maybe a couple common tables and they would all eat from the same bowls and everything else and especially the wealthy would recline on cushions, which was the Greek-Roman style of eating. And so because they had become wealthy, they forsook the Jewish style that was just sitting around uh, on the floor or around a common table on the, on the floor. And so here was all the guests that were there, and they had their, their seats. They were put in the proper places and, and so on. And uh, then the community, the village, would be allowed to come. If people wanted to come, they could come sit around on the outside and they could listen to what was going on. And especially when you had somebody that would be prominent like Jesus that was coming to teach, I guarantee you the place would have a lot of people because we have this difficult problem of understanding how this woman, this particular woman that is called a sinner woman, how she got into that house. Because if she would have tried to walk in the door just normal, you know, just by herself, she would have been stopped by servants or somebody would have stopped her, not allowed her in because she had a reputation. People knew what kind of woman she was. But if you had all these other guests coming in and she came in with them and she just sat behind them somewhere, then it's a whole different story now. And so if that was happening and these people were trying to find their seats around there and Jesus comes in and this woman sees that Jesus is being insulted on purpose by the Pharisee. Now, we don't know about this sinner woman, how she came to understand Jesus and be willing to come into that environment. But somehow I believe that she had to hear Jesus preach. Whether in the field or somebody else's home or whatever, somehow she had to hear. She had to hear the truth of who Jesus was, of, of his message, of what he was offering. 
And in that atmosphere, she began to be a woman under conviction because from her life of prostitution, she had lived for a long time in the hardness of heart of the practice of sin that she was in because that's what sin does. Yes, when it first began, she was convicted. She knew she was wrong. But eventually to deal, to cope with the pain of the life she was living, she had to harden her heart. And then Jesus shows up somewhere along the way. And now her conscience is is ripped open in essence. She starts coming under conviction. And the conviction is so great that she is going to attend this meal. And we don't know what goes on exactly before that. Did Jesus do some teaching or whatever? We don't know. But at a particular point, what happens is this woman comes behind Jesus. And why did she come behind Jesus? Because they were reclining. So his feet would have been facing backwards. She came behind him and she began to weep over his feet. She washed his feet. Then she kissed his feet. She anointed him. You see, she was doing what the Pharisee failed to do, refused to do. And she was doing it in the meekest, humblest way that you could imagine. But yet at the core of that there was repentance. This woman lived a life that was hostile to Jesus. Everything about her was hostile to Jesus. But you know what? So were all the Pharisees there. Their lives were hostile to Jesus as well. They just did it in a religious way. Or this woman did it in an immoral way. But they were all hostile to Jesus. And yet Jesus went into the middle of that place of hostility, that environment of hostility, because he wanted that woman. He was going after that woman. He knew that woman would be there, and so he was pursuing her. What we see is the same identical thing in this little microcosm it's the, it, you take it with the whole world, and that's exactly what he did. He broke into a world that was hostile to him. Not a world that was a friend of God, a world that was hostile to him. And he broke into this hostile world because he wanted all those who would receive him, who would bow to his rule, who would own him as Lord. And he'd go into that hostile territory for us. He would do it for our sake, making salvation available to anyone but yet knowing that only some would receive. So now Jesus does something that is really uh, very intense and very radical, and we won't understand it unless we understand the Jewish dynamic of this. Um, what Jesus did is he rebuked the Pharisee. Okay, that would be huge. You understand? Because when you have somebody come in, especially an honored guest, he would honor the host. And would not insult the host. But Jesus is now going to rebuke the Pharisee. That is like unheard of. You just don't do that. But Jesus is going to rebuke the Pharisee. But he does it in, in, in a way that brings the greatest shame to that Pharisee. He does it by looking at the woman and speaking to him. I mean, that was, you and I don't understand it. We don't, we don't see it because we don't understand that culture. But in that culture, that was an intense confrontation that was there. He went and said this little statement, so wonderful, so beautiful. It says, therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. So what does he do? He praises this woman, not for the sin that she practiced, not for the crazy life that she had lived, but because she was coming in faith, in repentance. And he was saying that, that she is forgiven because she was willing to love much. What does that mean, love much? It wasn't just the idea of love, of love necessarily one to another or anything else, but she was willing to come in the place of repentance, which is one tremendous expression of love towards God or wanting to enter into the place of loving God. But those who don't see that they're real sinners, they don't understand the gift. This woman understood how great a sinner she was. She understood that she was, her entire life was at war with God, at odds with God. And to receive forgiveness, she understood something as a, of a gift here that was so tremendous. And what is the response to that forgiveness? It would be this kind of devotion here, this kind of, uh, of, of expression of love and thankfulness, to weep at His feet, to kiss His feet, to, to anoint His feet, to do this, this act of devotion now in this radical change of her life. Because you see, this woman was going from an enemy to a friend. Right? The entirety of her life prior to this, she had been at war with God. But now something was happening with her 
that she was becoming a friend. And yet you had this religious Pharisee that didn't see himself a great sinner, so he remained in his sin. You know what's so interesting about this? Is the word Pharisee means separated one. And the Pharisees were this religious group of people that in the beginning had some great thought. They saw the, the, the Jewish uh, faith veering from what it was supposed to be, and so this became a group of people that were trying to restore this. But what happened in their, in their uh, trying to restore the, the true faith, they eventually morphed into something very ugly and legalistic that was all about do's and don'ts, so much so that they had moved beyond the law into making this, the, these traditions of men that at this time in Jesus' day, they were oral traditions passed on. So they were taught uh, within the Pharisees, taught from one uh, group of students to the next to the next, and they were very rigid with it until eventually those were written down and became the Mishnah. And so here you have this man that was a separated one that looked at any contact with sinful people as a defilement. He would have looked at, touch, at Jesus touching this woman as, as he's defiling. That's why he said, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman's touching him. But you could not defile Jesus. You understand? Perfect in holiness. All God, yet all man. And he came and could not be defiled. And what did he do, though, in touching this woman, letting this woman touch him? He was bringing to her cleansing, purity that she didn't have, that she'd never had. Turning her from an enemy to a friend. You know what Jesus did then? I like the way that it's, it's presented in the movie Jesus of Nazareth, but of course it's not proper because Jesus isn't reclining at the table, but yet it's so sweet the way that it is done because he reaches down and grabs her face and looks in those eyes and said, Woman, your sins are forgiven you. I don't know if he did that or not. But I guarantee you those words, she never forgot. I guarantee you she never forgot those words. She went away a transformed woman. When you get into chapter 8, beginning in verse 22, and prior to that, what's happening is Jesus speaking to a multitude. And uh, he ends up going to his disciples in verse 22. He says, one day Jesus said to his disciples, let's go to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and set out. So now they're starting to go. Jesus knows what's going on, okay? I do not doubt that among the disciples, uh, there were fishermen there, obviously. And in another count, it speaks of a couple of boats that went across. And so you had these fishermen that were there, and they knew how to read the signs of the sky. And I don't doubt they looked at the sky, and they realized a storm's coming, but Jesus get in the boat. You know what they did? They got in the boat, okay? You know what they didn't do? Grumble and complain and everything else. That came later, okay? <laughs> that came when the storm happened. Unfortunately, okay, that's not the way it should be, but I'm glad to see their, 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 their humanity in the story. So what happens, they get, in the, they get into the boat, they take off, and Jesus goes in the stern of the boat and goes to sleep. And, you know, here's God incarnate that had a real human body, so he got tired. And I guarantee you, ministry that he was doing was intense. I mean, people pressing upon him and everything. So he was looking for a good little nap, and he goes back there and he falls asleep. Well, you know, he's not concerned. He's not worried. He doesn't fret. He knows everything that's going to go on, so he's not bothered by it. And so the storm rises up. He's still sleeping. But the storm had to get so bad that some of the fishermen were concerned. And so all these men start complaining and, and they go and they wake Jesus up. And in one of the accounts, it even says, Are you not concerned that we are going to die? Now, think of this for a moment. That's pretty ridiculous. Right? If they didn't understand Jesus was going to, to, uh, to calm the storm, he, in essence, is they're, they're going to him and says, Won't you wake up and die with us? You know, instead of dying asleep. You know, I mean, just, it's kind of really another expression of our selfishness. But... Um, you know, they're just, they're just flipping out. They're just freaking out. They don't understand who's in the boat with them. So he gets up, rebukes them, and rebukes the storm, right? And all of a sudden, it gets calm. 
You know, of course, you're going to have the time until, as the waves are slowly getting smaller and smaller and smaller until eventually it's this beautiful calm that's there. In the 25th verse, it says, In fear and amazement, they asked one another, Who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. One translation, I really like how they say it, What kind of man is this? What kind of man? That's a good, good question. Because you see, nothing nothing worked the way it was natural with Jesus. I mean, he operated in the supernatural beyond anything people could comprehend. What kind of man is this? That he has the power to speak to the wind and the waves and they calm down? You see, Jesus had left the multitude. Been ministering to the multitude. Left the multitude. Because guess what? He's a missionary, right? He has a mission. And what's he going to do? He's going to go to the other side of the lake of the Sea of Galilee. And it tells in verse 26, they sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. So he's going to this area. And he's going for one particular person. Verse 27, when Jesus stepped ashore, he met a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house but lived in the tombs. And the other gospel accounts bring out this story. And, uh, you know, it talks about how he cut himself and people were terrified of him and they went and, and he broke chains. And, of course, they don't have chains as strong as what we have today, but broke chains that was put upon him. And, you know, this man had to be a, a, a terror, a terror to the people. You know, afraid to walk by, going around because not knowing what this man, this demoniac, would do. This man wasn't a friend of Jesus, you understand. I mean, this man is full of the devil. He's not a friend of Jesus. But Jesus is a missionary. He's seeking after that man. He left a multitude of people to go for this one man. That one man. That one man was so precious to him that though he was, was filled with the devil, and Jesus asked, what is your name? He says, we are legion because there's many of us. Now, we don't know how the man got demon-possessed as far as the dynamics that brought it about, but nobody can be demon-possessed unless they open themselves up to the demonic. Demon-possessed people become demon-possessed because they somehow open themselves up to the demonic, usually always through the practice of sin, or sometimes when you look at the accounts in Scripture of children being demon-possessed, it's because they were in a demonic environment and and the child opened themselves up innocently, not understanding, but they become demon-possessed as a result of it. The devil cannot possess people without their consent. Just like God will not possess us, come into us without our consent. And so as this man went into sin and as he was demon-possessed, he opened himself up more and more and more until he had a legion of demons. I mean, if you would would ask the people, if you'd ask the Pharisees, if you asked those who, who went and did exorcism back then, about that man, they would say that man is beyond hope. There is no hope for that man. He is so demon-possessed. He has given himself so fully, completely over. There's no way out for him. One of the accounts says that when Jesus stepped ashore, he saw the man running from a distance. So it's not that the accounts aren't contradicting each other. Just some are giving some information that other ones aren't. So Jesus stepped ashore just as this man was running to the shore. You understand the perfect timing? I mean, you know, he left the shore, went through the storm, all the storm calmed it, got to the place, and there's the man running to him. And when he came running to him, the man was screaming. It says he was screaming. There's things in there that, you know, we just don't understand. Yet, uh, here we have the aspect of the demons pleading with Jesus to go into the pigs. Now, we've got to understand something about this. Is when Jesus said go, they had no choice. There was no argument. You're dealing with absolute authority here. So they had to obey. They had to respond. They just went and said, can we go in the pigs? Instead of being cast into the pit, can we go in the pigs? We still want to roam this earth for some time until our time is, is up, that we are cast into the lake of fire. And Jesus gave them permission. Now, where this took place, the Gerasenes would be one of the Decapolis. And the Decapolis is 
is, uh, it refers to ten cities. So that's what the capitalist means, ten cities. And so there were ten cities in close proximity, and this was one of the small ones. The majority of the Decapolis was, uh, was populated by Gentiles, so that's why there was a, a herd of pig that was there, because the Jews don't eat pork. It's a forbidden food to them, but the Gentiles do, obviously. And uh, so they went into the swine. Now, you know what happened? The moment the, they went into the swine, the swine went insane. Yet all those devils was that, in that man. You understand why that man was as insane as what he, what he is? I believe there's a lot of stuff that we try to, to say is, is particular medical things that's much more demonic than people understand because we don't know how to solve all those things except in Christ. So the swine go crazy, and what do they do? They run off a cliff and they die. Now, just imagine if you are the swine herdman, okay? You've been hired by somebody wealthy that owns all those swine to take care of them. Your responsibility now is to make sure they're safe. Any wolves or any animals that come, predators want to take away, you've got to defend them. You've got to make sure they go to the place that they can feed and so on. Your responsibility. What happens when they run off a cliff and they're dead? You know what happens? Those <coughs> swine herders are responsible for the death of them all. That's some big time money that these poor, poor herdsmen did not have the ability to pay. So they're in this panic. What do we do? How are we going to take care of this? And a brilliant idea came to them. What we'll do is we'll blame Jesus. So that's what they do. It says that they go in the town and they start telling everybody what happened. And they stirred up the whole town that the town came out. And when the town came out, we are told in verse 35, the people went out to see what happened. And when they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed in his right mind. And they were afraid. So the first thing they did is they came out of town, they went and looked at all the dead pigs, okay, piled up over a cliff. And then they went to Jesus. And when they went to Jesus, they saw this, not this warrior is what they would think, but, you know, he's just in his robes, sitting there, there's a demoniac. They recognize him, the demoniac, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Now, that's a really sad response. That's a terrible response. They were afraid. Instead of rejoicing, they didn't go to the man up there and shake his hand. I'm so glad to see you're finally sane. I'm so glad that you see you're not living among the tombs. They didn't rejoice over it at all. They were terrified because they had never seen that kind of power before. Never seen it. Not just that, is they understood that some, mir some serious money just went over the edge of the cliff. And if Jesus stays, sticks around, what's he going to do to the rest of our income? All right, you understand? There's some scary di dynamics that's here. And they just don't know how to process this. But they do the most foolish thing that could happen. They went and asked him to leave. They asked him to leave. You know what Jesus did? He left. Here's this little microcosm again. Because what we're seeing here is the reality of what hell is all about. The aspect of people that come to the place, leave. I don't want you. And Jesus leaves them forever. And the agony of hell is worse than we could ever, ever imagine because it's a total absence of God. So you could, you could have no greater friend, no greater ally than Jesus and no greater enemy. It's what we do with Jesus that determines it all. That's what determines it all, what we do with Jesus. He will not force us to be friends we must make the choice to be friends. We must be willing to come to him and be reconciled to him that we can be friends. But he's going to honor what we do with that. And so what happened? The man that was full of the devil, that was an enemy of God, at one moment was transformed and became a friend. Isn't that astounding? In a moment. In a moment. That's how it works. In a moment. 
once you're at odds, once you're at war with God, and then not because of any righteous thing you have done, but you come to Him and you say, have mercy on me, forgive me, and the blood of Christ cleanses you from all sin, and you are made new in Christ. You are a new creation. Brand new creation. Once an enemy, now a friend. The next thing that happens is Jesus turns around, and where does He go back? He goes back right to where he had left from. You understand? He goes back to exactly where he was before because he left at the right time to meet that demoniac because he wanted that demoniac to turn. That demoniac, that former demoniac, now wanted to follow Jesus. But Jesus, no. He says, go and tell your family and friends what great things God has done for you. You know what happened? He goes back and he starts telling everybody Now, if they didn't believe he was the man, I don't know what kind of scars that man had on his body, but he had cut himself. Years and years, this bleeding, the scars that must have been all over. All you have to do is say, here, look at my arms. Look at my body. All the evidence was upon him of the reality of what he once was. And what happens is a little bit later, Jesus ends up preaching at the Decapolis and revival breaks out because the demoniac prepared the way just like you have with the with the uh, Samaritan woman that Jesus meets at the well and sends her into town. When he comes into town, revival happens. God has his way of doing a work, and it's phenomenal how he can do it. So Jesus ends up back at Capernaum. It's outside Capernaum. Capernaum was the home base for Jesus' ministry. And it wasn't real far from Bethlehem, but it was a little ways, but it wasn't real far from Bethlehem. So where... Capernaum became the home base that he started all of his ministry from. And so I think that's why a large crowd was still waiting for him, because they knew he was going to come back more than likely. They didn't know when. What happens in this event is there's this man named Matthew, and uh, Jesus saw Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth, and he said to him, follow me. And what Matthew do? What's the pay scale? gave it all up, followed him immediately, right? Followed him immediately. Now, it's kind of interesting, and I've, I've really struggled over this because as I've looked at this and looked at this and looked at this, I just can't put the time frame all together here. Because in Luke, it makes it sound like Matthew was already an apostle and, and uh, with Jesus for some time. Where the other ones, you don't get that same feel. So it's just sometimes hard to put the time frames always together. Because what happens is when Jesus comes back to Capernaum, he ends up going to Matthew's house. And what does he do at Matthew's house? Matthew is going to put on this this huge banquet, call all of his old party of friends, all of the tax collectors, all the sinners and the people that he was was, uh, uh, in sin with. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. And uh, he's going to put on this big banquet. Why? Because they are, Matthew is learning something from Jesus, the missionary, right? So what's he going to do? Take all these sinners, all these people that are hostile to God, and he's going to go and put Jesus right smack dab in the middle of them. I'm mean, talking about an awesome environment, because I guarantee you what happened is he was there with them to teach them to preach to them, to call them to repentance. It was total missionary, total missionary work. The truth here becomes very important because we have to understand when Paul tells us that we're not to be unequally yoked together, that means that my best friends, my close friends, aren't to be those who are not believers. My closest, dearest friends, all the ones that I confide in and everything else, should all be followers of Jesus. But what am I supposed to do as a follower of Jesus? I am to have the right ways of going into environments that are hostile to Christ to bring the message of salvation to them. If I forsake that pattern, I rebel against God then, and as a disciple I start doing wrong and making people my best friends that ought not to be my best friends. Because you know what happens? All the dynamics change then. Because now the conversation has nothing to do about Jesus and all about the world. Everything changes, and the corrupting of the heart takes place in that. Jesus gave us a a tremendous model here. And so he goes in there, and he's preaching to the people. Okay? 
Now, what's going on at this time? Jesus had come ashore, and when he came ashore, you have the multitude that was there. And this is what I'm, I'm just how I'm trying to put the pieces together. It seems like the multitude followed Jesus into Capernaum to Matthew's house. Okay? So you got the people, all kinds of people outside of Matthew's house. Because we know for sure you had disciples, you had Pharisees and disciples of John the Baptist that were outside the house. Why wouldn't the Pharisees go into the house? Because it was a house of sinners and you'd be defiled, you'd be unclean. So they wouldn't go. So they stood outside attacking Jesus and speaking bad against him against, to his disciples. But Jesus didn't care. He's in there ministering to all these sinners, calling them to repentance and having a grand old time doing it. Now something is taking place in another part of town. What is you have the synagogue ruler, Jairus? And a synagogue ruler we could think of as a pastor. He was the pastor of the synagogue. Very prestigious position in Jewish culture back then. Okay, very prestigious. And so here you have this man that would have been, been prominent in Capernaum. Capernaum was a big town. It had a Roman uh, contingent of soldiers that was there, so it wasn't a little village. <clears throat> so there was... There would have been many different uh, synagogues there to accommodate the people and, and, and to hold to the Sabbath laws and so on and how far you could work and, or walk, excuse me. And uh, so what goes on here is this man, and I don't doubt that Jesus maybe even spoke at a synagogue, but yet the Pharisees were tied into synagogues. That's where they had their influence. The Sadducees were the rich elite, and they worked at it from the political aspect with Rome. So this vying of power from the populace with the Pharisees to the, to the elite from the Sadducees. But here's the Pharisees tied into the synagogues, and you have the influence of the Pharisees being pushed strongly upon the synagogues. I'd venture to say that if Jairus was not an actual full-blown hostile enemy of Jesus, he was an enemy nonetheless because he didn't walk in fellowship with him, and he was very afraid of crossing a line because he'd be, he would just be blasted by the Pharisees. So what happens? You have the Pharisees out there attacking Jesus and attacking the disciples of Christ. You have Jairus and his daughter's dying. And he's tried everything. He's used his wealth to try and get, get his, his, his little girl healthy. Nothing's working. So what does he do? He's at his wit's end. No other remedy. No other remedy out there except Jesus. And what does he do? He goes and he seeks out Jesus. And he goes to Matthew's house because he hears that's where Jesus is. He goes to Matthew's house. What does he have to do to get into Matthew's house? He has to go through a bunch of hounds of Pharisees. And you know what they would be doing the moment he goes to try walking the door? They're going to stop him and condemn him. And all the hostility is going to be there. Can you imagine what those men were thinking when Jairus came into that house of, house of Matthew? And when he came into that house of Matthew, they would have thought, Jairus is unclean now. But even worse than that, he comes and he falls at Jesus' feet. Falls at his feet. Then a man named Jairus, ruler of a synagogue, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter a girl about 12 was dying. So what does Jesus do? I mean, he upsets the whole banquet, all right? But he'd already done his preaching. You understand? His ministry has gone on. He's already ministered all these, 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 these sinners. And so he gets up and he leaves with the synagogue ruler. Now, what I think is going on here is, uh, is my guess is, is because we know for sure that the disciples followed Jesus, I imagine all the people that were there at that banquet got up and followed Jesus. And as Jesus began to go with the synagogue ruler, the Pharisees and the disciples of John the Baptist that were out there began to follow as well. And then all the other people that were out there, people that were aching for Jesus to come out to heal them, all these needs outside, they began to follow. Well, what happens is you get this, this crush of people that is so great that they can hardly move. Now just imagine if you were Jairus and you're wanting Jesus to get there to heal your daughter that's dying and you know minutes are important and you're just crawling along these, these narrow roads because the people are so pressed in. I mean, it's just so tight and, and that. But you have, while this is going on, you have this woman. And she has this problem 
Verse 43, it says, And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. Other accounts bring out that she has spent everything she had. Just, she had this issue of blood, this bleeding. Doctors couldn't figure it out. Nobody could figure it out. Spent all that she had. Here you have dynamics of the story that we're not told. Be interesting for us. We really like this as, as, as 21st century Americans. Give me all the facts of it, you know. But they're just not given there. There's just not enough. But it may be that this woman was never able to get married because you hear nothing of a, of, of a son, a daughter, or of a, or of a husband. So it may be that as a young girl, she ended up getting this issue of blood. She could never get married. So her life is just a life of loneliness and misery and, and just hopelessness. And she's in this place where nothing is going to, to, to meet this need. And she sees she's hanging out the door of Matthew's house wanting to get to Jesus. But now Jesus comes out in the whole crowd. How do I get to him? I would venture to say, because we don't know well, we don't know what it was that she really had. I'd venture to say that this was severe enough that she was a woman that was not strong. And this idea comes to her, if only I can touch the hem of his garment, if only I can touch it. How do you get through all this multitude that's pressing on Jesus? And I would also venture to say that probably the majority of them were men that were around there. So she's to get near, she is going to have to push and shove and all the things that people would be saying to her while she's trying to get through and just, just if I could just touch him, if I could just touch the hem of his garment. This desperation was rising up in her because she realized if I don't meet Jesus, if I don't have him touch me, then I am doomed in this condition for the rest of my life. Verse 44 says she came up behind him. And touched the edge of his cloak and immediately her bleeding stopped. Something happened so radical in her body, so instantaneous that she immediately knew she was healed. Immediately. She felt the power of God flow from Jesus into her. And she was immediately healed. Now Jesus knew. He felt the power. He felt the power and he stopped right there and he says, who touched me? And that's where you get the picture of how much the people were cramming. He says, people are all around you. What do you mean somebody touched you? They're all trying to touch you. But there was something different about the touch of faith. Something very different about the touch of faith. This woman was in desperation. And faith becomes very powerful when we are desperate enough to grab hold. And so what does she do? She touches the hem of the garment. But she realizes Jesus is going to find her. You know, you don't have somebody with power like that that doesn't know what's going on. And he's looking around, and his eyes were almost ready to fall upon her, and she confesses, comes trembling before him. Why would she be trembling? Why would she be trembling? Well, I don't doubt Jesus was a very scary man. Most loving man this world has ever known, but I'll tell you what, that love brought trauma to people. What will Jesus do? What will he say to me? Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. What tender words that like the sinner woman, she never forgot those words. And I believe it's at that moment that she went from an enemy of God to a friend of God. That she was transformed. You see, that's how Jesus does it. Unfortunately, we've got to come to this place where life is hard. We've got to suffer. None of us come to Jesus because of noble reasons. You know, well, I just don't want to go to hell. We somehow come to Jesus because we realize we're a sinner and our life is a mess and, and the hopelessness, all the dynamics that are there to bring us finally to the point to cry out that we need a Savior. It's wonderful that He will do, do that, that He'll work in us, that he'll, he'll bring us to the point that we might see our need, but He'll not force us to accept Him. He'll not force us to follow Him. He'll not force us to obey. We have to make the choice. Now Jesus comes. Now remember, this is all taking place while Jesus left Matthew's house on His way to Jairus' house. And so along the way now, you have this woman that, that kind of interrupts the flow of things for a little bit. She's healed. But they're still on the way to Jairus' house. But what happens is, just even while Jesus is speaking, it tells in verse 
49, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Now, isn't that kind of crazy? Well, we know that you can, can heal people, but, you know, you cross that line of death, you, you know, no hope. That's it, you know. So just don't bother them. Have, don't have them come anymore, you know. But I can just imagine, just imagine the man. Just imagine the man to hear that and his, his heart just sunk. It just despair would fall upon him. And hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, don't be afraid. Just believe and she will be healed. You see, this is all wasn't God's plan. You know, all this was happening for a purpose because here's the greatest missionary the world has ever known or ever could know. And he is using these events in ways that are just absolutely mind boggling. He's using these events to try and reach everybody that wants to know him. He can't do anything for the Pharisees and those who don't want to know him. But he can do something for the prostitutes and, the, and, and women that are hurting because of her sickness and disease and because of the Matthew and the crazy life he lived as a tax collector. And so what does he do? He comes to the home of the synagogue ruler and it's already full of mourners. And you had at that time, just as you had in, in, in until probably 100 years ago, I don't know where it finally stopped, but you would have professional mourners, people that were hired to mourn, to make it look like, okay, this person was really important and so on. And uh, so you have the family mourning, but then you have whoever else is hired to mourn. The house was full of mourners, full of mourners. And so Jesus went and told them, this is, she's not dead. And what happened here? It says they laughed at him, knowing he was dead. They mocked him. These were enemies. You understand? Those people, those mourners, were enemies. They were enemies of Christ. They were hostile to him. They did not understand. Their mind was not even open to it. They could not comprehend. So what did Jesus do? He put them all out. Now, can you imagine that scene? Just try and picture that. You have all these people mourning and weeping over the death of this 12-year-old girl. And Jesus says, she's not dead. They begin to mock him. He says, get out. Get out. I mean, do you think they just left easy? I don't think they left easy. I think they were complaining and grumbling the whole way out. And, you know, until eventually he gets them out and closes the door. And I don't know if there's some kind of lock that they could put on to keep them out. You know? So... It's just Jesus, the mother and father, and a couple of disciples. It says he took her by the hand and said, my child, get up. Now, what would you do if that, if that was your child? Oh, well, that was nice. That's pretty cool, Jesus. What would you do? I mean, really, be honest. I think the parents went hysterical. You know? And I think they went and, and grabbed this little girl and, and hysterically, you know, holding her and that there. And Jesus had to bring some sanity to them. Says, says, give her something to eat. You know? Try and bring back... Okay, give, them some, give her something to eat and, uh, and that. But I'll guarantee you, Jairus and the mother were never the same. He couldn't speak against Jesus anymore. You understand? There was something radically changed. And whether he came to Christ or not, I would venture to say that at that moment he became a friend because he realized that Jesus was like no other man. So what is our condition? Romans chapter 2, verse 6 says, God will give each person according to what he has done. The, the, the brilliant logic of Romans is just astounding. Chapter 1 is where Paul teaches that all Gentiles are sinners. Chapter 2, that all Jews are sinners. Chapter 3, everybody's a sinner. And if you're not convinced you're a sinner, then you need to read those three chapters over again. Okay? Read them until you are convinced that the Word of God so thoroughly condemns you as a sinner that you understand that you're a sinner in need of repentance. Okay? That's just that's the reality of it. Paul doesn't leave anything because after that he's going to start getting into salvation by grace through faith. 
but he has to bring out the reality that we are sinners, we are hostile to God, all of us are his enemies, none of us are his friends, none of us have a right to eternal life. We all have the right, the only right we have is to eternal damnation and separation from God. In verse 7 of chapter 2, he says, To those who, by persistence in doing good, seek honor, glory, and immortality, he will give eternal life. You see, God blesses his friends. He blesses those who enter into fellowship with him. Blesses them with life and, and, and joy and all the things that come out of true salvation. He blesses them. Doesn't mean it has anything to do with finances. Then in the next verse it says, But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. And so wrath will come upon his enemies because they chose to rebel. You see, he has given us a free will. That's a gift that God gave us right in the beginning with Adam and Eve. He gave us a free will. Everybody has a free will. God will not violate that free will. He'll not take that free will from us. He will not make people serve him that don't want to serve him and make people go to hell that don't want to go to hell because they really want to go to heaven and know God. You understand? He gave us a free will. He honors that. He will work intensely and in ways we can't imagine to bring us to the place of salvation, but he will not violate that free will. Everyone that's in hell is in hell because they chose to reject the love of God. They, re- they chose to reject him. They chose to take a path of lawlessness, of breaking God's law and saying no. And it doesn't matter if there's some, some, some little grandma who's never chewed smoke or swore in her life or some gangbanger in L.A. that's killing people. All of them, all of mankind are sinners and deserve the wrath of God. When left to themselves, our only hope, our only remedy is that God would break into our own personal world and that we would have enough sense to come to our senses like the demoniac, right? Insane from his sin, insane from his his activity in the world. And Jesus brought sanity to him through repentance. In chapter 3, verses 10 through 18, As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Are these people friends? The condition of all of mankind is that they are enemies of God. Then we got this wonderful thing in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. This wonderful but. But. God demonstrates his own love for for us in this, that while we were sinners... Christ died for us. This is all the heart of the missionary of Christ. The missionary to come and to seek and to save what was lost. Not just when he walked this planet. He is still that same missionary. He's working through the Holy Spirit and and wanting to work through his church to bring the reality of who Jesus is to a perishing world. Just think of the issue. Two men. Two totally different responses. Both of them were apostles. One denied Jesus. So did the other one. One denied him three times publicly that he was not a follower of Jesus. The other one even recanted of his denial of Christ and his betrayal. Threw 30 pieces of silver down before the Pharisees who he had taken the money from. But you understand there was something different that went on with both. Peter took the path of repentance and was restored. Jesus even says, when you're restored, strengthen your brothers. He was restored. But Judas was not restored because he refused to take the path of repentance. He did not have to go to hell. The man went to hell because God used the man according to his nature not making him to be something that was contrary to his nature. Jesus went and said this in such a wonderful way. In John chapter 15, verse 14, You are my friends if you do what I command. 
You understand? That's a sign of a friend. That's a sign of a friend. That when we become a friend, we want to do what pleases Him. It becomes our heart because we love Him. And because we love Him, we want to do what pleases Him. That we don't live in the practice of sin because that's what people who are enemies do. They live in the practice of sin. That's why in 1 John we are told that those who practice sin do not know God. They are not God's friends because they are in the practice of sin. You cannot be in the practice of sin and a follower of Jesus at the same time. It's an impossibility. It's one or the other. So if we want to be a friend of Jesus, then we have to come to the place of the foot of the cross and find cleansing from our sin and grace and transforming power to change us from being enemies to becoming friends. You see, as friends now, we have a humongous responsibility. be to this world, Jesus. You understand why He came? Why He came, what He did, is what we are to be doing. As friends, we should be wanting to go into a perishing world in any way we can to try and win them because they are at war. They are enemies of God. And you know, that gets very painful when it's family, right? I'd venture to say we've probably all got family members that are on their way to hell, that they are enemies of God. If you don't understand that, you will never pray rightly. You'll never reach out to them correctly then. When we understand the truth of it, then we can pray according to the truth and we can reach out to them according to the truth and understand that they are enemies of God. And our responsibility as being friends of God is to bring them to the place that they can be friends as well, that they can know the wonder of this love, that they can know the wonder of forgiveness. Just imagine each of these people Imagine what the demoniac felt when the devil just came out of him. Came to his right senses. Just imagine what it was for that sinner woman. What it was to feel forgiveness break into her life instantly cleansed. Imagine the woman with the issue of blood when she felt herself cleansed of that. Imagine Matthew when Jesus follow me and he leaves it all, everything. And he walks out of the tax collector's booth and just this power transforms a man, changes him. This radical change that happens in his life. Each of these people had encounters with God that were radical because that's what Jesus does when he takes a person that's an enemy and turns them into a friend. If there's anybody here that you are not right with Jesus, that you're a backslider never given your life to Christ. You have to understand you are an enemy, an enemy of God. And it is the most loving thing that God can do to help you understand that truth, that you are his enemy. Because at the same time as he is convincing you of the reality that you are his enemy, he's reaching out a hand to rescue you. He's reaching out a hand to rescue you because he does not want you to stand before him in that condition. He doesn't want you to stand in that condition before Him as an enemy. He longs to speak good things to you when you stand before His judgment seat. He longs to say, well done, good and faithful servant. He does not want to speak, depart from me, I never knew you. It is the heart of God. It is His will that all of mankind come to salvation. And He will honor and respect what we say, what we do with Him. And so if I might put it like this, the most important thing you could ever do in your life is to become a friend of God, to cease being an enemy, enemy. And from that moment on, the most important thing you can do is keep yourself in the love of God so you stay that friend until you breathe your last. Father, we come before you now in the precious name of Jesus. And Lord, I'm asking for the reality of this message to sink in each of our hearts. Lord, for those who are true followers of you to understand your mission and God, that you would lay hold of our hearts with that mission, God, that that mission would become our mission. God, that's why you came into this world. That's what Christianity is all about, that we are to be missionaries going into a perishing world to take people that are enemies and bring them to the foot of the cross that they might become friends. God, that is our calling. And it's the calling of every single believer So, God, I'm asking that you would do a work in each of our hearts. God, make us Christians that understand this call and do something with it, O God, for your name's sake. 
But if there's anybody here that is not right with you, God, I'm asking, I'm pleading with you, God, for coming home, for running to you, for deliverance no less radical and beautiful than what happened to that demoniac, what happened to that sinner woman. Oh, God, would you do that this morning? In the precious and wonderful name of Jesus.